Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. In a few seconds, I'll be back with Gerald Horn to discuss the January 6th Congressional Committee hearings, which have more or less come to an end, at least in terms of their public deliberations. Please don't forget, there's a donate button at the top of the website. You can't, we can't do this if you don't click it. Uh, if you're on YouTube, subscribe. Most important thing, come over to the website and get on our email list and be back in just a few seconds. The Congressional House Committee, looking into the events of January 6th, held its last public hearings this week. And now joining us to discuss the significance of those hearings is Gerald Horn. Gerald is a historian. He holds the John Jay and Rebecca Morris Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's the author of many books, including The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, and Capitalism in 17th Century North America and the Caribbean. Most recently, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Thanks for joining us, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. So, well, first of all, you you uh, one of the few people I know that's really been watching these hearings and trying mm -hmm. to stay on top of them. So what, what have they accomplished? Well... First of all, as a historian, I'm happy to see a record being compiled because eventually the hundreds of interviews that they've conducted both on tape and transcript will be deposited in the National Archive. As you probably know, they have not interviewed in the public. Uh, they have not displayed in the public hearings uh, every one of those almost a thousand interviews. So there will be a lot of raw material for historians of the future to pour over. So that issue I think is, is critical. I think that the import of your question, if I'm allowed to interpret it, is that it's apparent that they haven't moved the needle with regard to public opinion. Uh, half the country uh, feels that these hearings are not worth watching. As we know, there is a, a quite a bit of electoral denial in the United States of America. That is to say that you have hundreds of people uh, running for Congress, many of whom will be successful, I'm afraid to say, and for other offices as well, uh, who feel that Trump won the election. And many of them are not necessarily uh, unhappy about the events of January 6th. And then you have another uh, considerable portion of the population that was convinced going in that uh, Trump is a coup plotter and that he deserves to be either put in an orange jumpsuit or put in a straitjacket and carted away to a, a mental institution. So that was baked into the society even before the hearings. And that's one of the reasons why I stress the importance of trying to uh, formulate a historical record because that will be of use to historians, assuming that our planet survives, of course. Yeah, I think many of those people who are quote-unquote election deniers uh, actually don't so much mind the idea of a coup being plotted. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, it, it, you know, the, you can be both a coup supporter and an election denier, uh, and, and one serve the other. Um, I guess the logic that's being put forward now is that the hearings, 
and this somewhat goes along with what you're saying in terms of laying a, a historical uh, groundwork, that the hearings have laid out the case for the Department of Justice to actually mm -hmm. lay charges against Trump. And so whether public opinion is swayed or not, if they can actually lay charges against Trump, um, and I don't know if, if out of that process can tie him up either so much legally or even in some actual legal way, prevent him from running. Although I think that has to be a congressional move. I'm not, I don't know that any court can stop, stop him. I guess if he's convicted, there's some possibility of that. But I guess the, the objective here is to tie him up. But, but I, I guess that's also the problem of the hearings is that it's all focused on sinking Trump, the individual. And it doesn't go very far beyond that. It, it, and, and, and both the, the Democrats and the small number of Republicans, uh, Liz Cheney and such, uh, who hate the Trumpist section of the Republican Party, maybe even more than the Democrats do, um, uh, they only, their only target is to sink Trump. No, the broader question is of, of a rise of a fascist movement is really not being addressed. Am I right? Well... In part, uh, recall that Mr. Biden got severe pushback when he floated the term semi-fascism. Recall the speech that he gave in Philadelphia at the uh, entity that houses documents, and et cetera, about the Constitution. And uh, that did not go down very well with a significant portion of the electorate. It reminded me of when uh, Hillary Rodham, Rodham Clinton in 2016 spoke of some of the Trump base as being, quote, deplorable, unquote, which is obviously a few pegs below being semi-fascist. Uh, there are people who objected stridently, even people who were anti-Trump. Now, with regard to Mr. Trump being barred from office, actually, it's part of the post-Civil War amendments to the Constitution that if you raise insurrection against the U.S. government, supposedly you're barred from further office. But as you suggest, that would have to be litigated. And given the fact that the courts are packed with Trump appointees, it's difficult for me to believe that there is any judge who's going to rule that Mr. Trump is ineligible to run for office. Uh, with regard to a prosecution of him, I keep reading that that's in the cards, particularly the documents case coming out of Mar-a-Lago, which obviously raises all manner of intriguing questions, not least as to why he would want to keep documents about uh, President Macron of France, although I, I have my suspicions. And now, apparently, that could, case could be prosecuted. There's a case out of Atlanta. Recall the phone call where he uh, encourages a state official to find about 12,000 votes that would tip him into the winner's column with regard to the election in Georgia, November 2020. Uh, there are cases uh, coming out of New York State that are civil, admittedly, but uh, with the kind of documentation that you can garner in a civil case, that could probably turn up evidence that could be used in a criminal case. It's going to be very difficult for him to uh, take the uh, Fifth Amendment in a civil case, although uh, it's possible. So uh, I think that Mr. Trump is not out of the woods yet, and I think it's because uh, there is this perception afloat in elite circles that if you could only get rid of Mr. Trump, 
everything would be hunky-dory. In fact, uh, the New York Times columnist Brett Stevens, who's a never-Trumper conservative, has written as much. And I understand why people take that position, because that relieves you of the responsibility of doing a deeper analysis, to coin a phrase, uh, of the political economy and the politics of the United States. And if you were to pursue such an analysis, you would immediately arrive at the conclusion that Mr. Trump did not get 75 million votes by accident, that he has a mass base, that there are those who are obviously willing to go to jail for him. And speaking of going to jail, even though he is the big enchilada, uh, I don't think we should rule out the possibility that it will be easier to send behind bars people like uh, Steve Bannon, uh, his former strategist, Peter Navarro, a former White House aide, Roger Stone. Now, Bannon may not be former strategist, but go on. Okay, Roger there's, Stone. So there's certainly some indication he's still in the mix. Yeah, they seem to have a back and forth relationship. So, and and that's not even to mention um, his sons, uh, Eric and Don Jr. So, I think what you're driving at is the question, which is obviously profoundly important, as to what about the members of the 1% who were financing Mr. Trump, who might have been witting with regard to the coup attempt? What about the military figures, for example? Uh, it's well known that both police departments and U.S. armed forces are riddled with uh, fascist-minded individuals. Too much has been made of the rebelliousness of Mark Milley, the military officer who resisted Mr. Trump's blandishments or the former chief of staff and Mad Dog Mattis and these other guys who resisted. Because once again, I think that that might be comforting to some to think that there's all this resistance at the highest level to Mr. Trump, when actually when you start digging a bit more deeply, uh, you would find uh, many individuals who are actually uh, have been and still are complicit. See, I think part of what's going on is that the preponderance of the elites, not all, but much, their actual objective isn't to fascization. They're, they, they like the fact that there's 75 million people out there, many of whom are workers, some who are even poor, uh, and and although many are not, but still, they like the fact there's so many people out there that have this blind faith in a guy who can then cut taxes, deregulate, and deliver to corporate America everything they could possibly want. So I actually don't think most of the elites don't mind what's happening here. What they don't like is a loose cannon who wouldn't peacefully transition power because that's not good for business. If there'd been a coup, if Biden had been prevented from becoming president, it would have been chaos. And corporate America didn't want chaos. And I, I, I seem to be the only one that keeps referencing what I'm about to say. And I don't know why, but at any rate, I'll say it again. The doors of Congress were breached at 2.10 in the afternoon on January 6th. At 3.10 in the afternoon, an hour later, 
the Association of American Manufacturers issued a public uh, press release calling on Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment and remove Trump. Now, this is one of the most important lobbying organizations for corporate America. They were the greatest supporters of Trump right up until the point where he wouldn't transition power. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't that they minded the way Trump governed on the whole. They didn't want a madman running the state. And, uh, and so in some ways it is about just making sure Trump doesn't get in, where DeSantis, who will have maybe the same kind of politics and maybe more effective at it, there's probably lots of the corporate elite would be more or less happy with that, including all the Christian nationalism, as long as it doesn't make change the way they have to live. Well, I, I don't necessarily uh, disagree with what you just said, but I think what you have said bespeaks the rifts at the highest level of the U.S. ruling elite. Uh, that is to say, uh, Tucker Carlson has been one of the most severe critics of Ukraine, for example. I'm speaking of the, the Fox News uh, TV host whose program in the evenings is wildly popular. And that speaks to the fact that many of the conservatives have broken with the Democratic Party with regard to bedrock issues of foreign policy. That is to say that, uh, as Thomas Friedman of the New York Times put it the other day, and of course uh, he has been a cheerleader and an evangelist for neoliberalism, uh, he was wondering at the feasibility of confronting China and Russia at the same time. I mean, because Mr. Trump's relationship with Russia, shall we say, has yet to be fully unraveled. But I think it's fair to say that his policy towards Moscow was not as harsh as the Biden policy, although the Biden and Trump policies towards China have been remarkably congruent. And Mr. Thomas Friedman was raising the old Henry Kissinger line that it is not wise to confront Russia and China simultaneously. There lies disaster, according to Mr. Kissinger and Thomas Friedman. And so given these sorts of fundamental disagreements on bedrock issues, such as the fate of global supremacy, it does not surprise me that uh, there are those in the ruling class who actually might be more favorable uh, to a Trump return to the White House. Uh, and of course, given the fact that uh, the United States has not been reluctant to impose fascism abroad, I mean, the list is endless. Let's just mention Chile in 1973. Uh, then it seems to me to prepare the path for accepting same at home. And so to that degree, uh, I uh, actually agree with what you're saying. Yeah, I think they'd like, they certainly would like Trumpism, but I think without Trump, I do think most of the elites, not all, but most, think the guy's just out of his mind. And there's lots <laughs> of evidence that he is. 
So tie him up in court, try to bankrupt him through uh, lawyers, fees, and so on and so on, and then find someone else can do the same thing without being so nuts. It's kind of like the uh, the Yeltsin to Putin handoff. You know, you want you mm. want Yeltsin, but not a drunk. You want a sober Yeltsin. You don't want a drunk <laughs> Yeltsin. Uh, there, there's another thing with these hearings, uh, which which uh, you know you and I have talked about, but I'll say it again. Um, on January 4th, 10 former secretaries of defense write a letter organized by Dick and Liz Cheney where they warn the U.S. military to stay out of the elections. On the same day, Admiral Steverdos, if I'm pronouncing it, or Steverdis, former Supreme Commander of NATO, writes a piece in Time magazine supporting the letter of the 10 former secretaries. And he even goes further. He talks about how the acting uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, Miller, I think is the name, quote, doesn't have the spine to stand up to this president. A serious warning from him to the military to stay the hell out of the elections. And then on the same day, the editorial board of the Financial Times has an editorial which ends with the, with the sentence, as bizarre as it is, uh, a coup is in progress in the United States. So that's two days before January 6th. So you'd think if you're doing having a commission to look into a potential coup, quote unquote, of January 6th, you'd want to look into what led up to it to the extent that there's such open recognition of something going on in the U.S. military on the 4th. And obviously, it's before the 4th, because it takes a couple of weeks to get a letter together of 10 former secretaries. Uh, the America, Association of American Manufacturers doesn't make a decision in one hour to call, call for the removal of Trump. Uh, so this, I, you know, I think is about the strength of Christian nationalism in the military. And we know Flynn, who was calling for martial law in the White House, they were actually having meetings to discuss, should we declare martial law? And th this movement to stop uh, the steal starts in the middle of September before there's an election. Steve Bannon is on the Tucker Carlson show. And, and Tucker says to uh, Bannon, what are you expecting? And he says, well, I'm starting a national tour tomorrow, a stop the steal tour. And I'll tell you now, the day after the elections is when the war breaks out. And Carlson says to him, you know what? I think you're right. The Democratic Party has traumatized their base. They're not going to come out to vote. And so somehow they have to concoct a some effort to steal this election because they're not going to get people to come out and vote on game day, the 3rd of November of this year. And that's what I've been I, working I, on for the last couple of months. I was never going back. I was never going back to the campaign. And that's where these guys messed up. My platform's bigger now. My voice is bigger. I've got more resources and all we're focused on is to make sure that the progressive so, so I, left and the corporatists cannot steal, cannot steal the election from Donald Trump. I'm more focused than ever. We're kicking off a national tour on Monday called the Plot to Steal 2020. They're not going to stop my voice in assisting President Trump and making sure that this election that he's going to win on the third is not stolen from him. Huh. And then maybe the real contest begins. Steve Bannon, I'm glad that you came on. Thank you that's very when, much. That's when the war starts. I, I, Thanks, I'm, beginning to th I'm beginning to think that's true. There's a, there's a, there's a grand plan here of, a, of, the, of Christian nationalists allied with you know, the far-right forces, Bannon-esque forces, and so on. And I don't see a word of this 
in this January 6th committee. It's just, let's get Trump. Well, with regard to the latter point, um, I think the most recent hearing did a fair, incredible job in trying to make the case that even before the election, Mr. Trump and his acolytes were pushing the stop the steal line, were suggesting that fraud was in motion to deprive the rightful winner, meaning Mr. Trump, of his victory. In fact, you, you, you see this is now becoming part of the Republican Party playbook. Uh, Blake Masters, who is running for the U.S. Senate against Mark Kelly, funded by Peter Thiel, the Silicon Valley billionaire, early investor in Facebook and PayPal, who not only has a passport to New Zealand, now developing one for Malta, in addition to trying to fund this enterprise where you, you can have whole communities living in international waters, not subject to any government jurisdiction. Well, uh, Blake Masters has already suggested that the election he's running in Arizona is going to be stolen from him. So this is becoming part of the playbook of the Republicans. In fact, uh, it would not be an exaggeration to suggest that uh, in the near and immediate future, we may be looking back at past and previous elections as a golden era of electoral, quote, democracy, unquote, because it's apparent that the Trump team, the Trumpistas, do not plan to have fair elections going forward. Uh, I think that that's a given. Now, with regard to your other point, which is well taken concerning Admiral Stavridis and Dick Cheney uh, at, at, at all, what I would say is that the committee has interviewed about a thousand people. But if you look at the public hearings, I would estimate only about 30 or 40 witnesses have, have appeared in public on the screen, on television. And as has been reported, the committee consulted with Hollywood producers in how to produce a show that would capture the interests of the U.S. public. Uh, that is to say that uh, we cannot rule out the possibility that some of these topics and individuals that you've referenced were covered by the committee, but it was not cinematically gripping. And so they did not put it before you. Oh, I think it's gripping. I think it's if if you go public, hmm. that you you risked losing civilian control over the U.S. military. That goes to the heart of the America, strong, stable, good place for business. Uh, this it goes it goes to the very. It's a dagger in the heart of that if you let that come out. But it's very interesting that not only do you have that statement on January 4th where they warned the military to come out, in September of this year, there's another statement by eight former secretaries of defense, and I think it's four or three, I can't remember exactly, former chair of the Joint Chiefs. And it's something like an eight bullet points all about maintaining civilian control of the military. Now, you, why come out with a statement like that unless you're worried about losing civilian control of the military? Mm -hmm. So there's something really going on here 
but I think it would it would make the United States look like a quote unquote banana republic, you know, one of these quote unquote unstable third real world countries where the military has its own, you know, starts to take over. Uh, they just don't want to talk about that in public, but they certainly seem to be afraid of it. Well, it's r- reminiscent, actually, of the old movie Seven Days in May, which you might recall oh, yeah. decades ago. It was precisely. God, everybody should watch that. If you haven't seen it, you got to watch it. Precisely about the possibility of a military coup. And uh, I think that with regard to why this hasn't been front and center, I can only speculate, uh, perhaps it's too sensitive and explosive, uh, as your remarks tend to suggest. And I should also say, we also have to uh, wait for the written report, which will be out within weeks, because uh, as I'm sure you know, there's only so much you can do with the documentary cinematic form. You can do more with a written text. You can do more in 900 pages than you can do in nine sessions or whatever the number was with regard to the hearings. And so let's let's wait and see. Let's wait and see what the written report has to say, because I would hope and imagine that they would deal with this if only in terms of I, I'll be shocked. I'll be shocked if they do. We'll, we'll lay a bet and see, because uh, you know this is to me almost like nine eleven in in the way the media stays within the lines of the official narrative because it's dangerous to go past it. Uh, you know, I, you know, I've been saying I, I did these interviews with Senator Bob Graham, who was the co-chair of the uh, Joint Congressional Investigation into nine eleven, and I have him on camera where he outright says that Bush and Cheney facilitated the 9-11 attacks. I mean, he outright says it, no beating around the bush, that, that they knew something was coming and that they deliberately, Cheney deliberately created chaos amongst the intelligence agencies, didn't share information, had all the information going to him and so on. I won't get into all the detail now. I have no idea whether Graham's right or wrong. You know, I wasn't in the White House. I wasn't in, you know, I, I, I'm not privy to any conversations. And I don't know as much as Graham knew, who had millions of dollars to investigate all this. But Jesus, the, the co-chair and of the Joint Congressional Committee, the former chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, says these things. Isn't that news? That he thinks it's true? I couldn't get anybody to report on it. I offered my interviews to every news organization in the country of any size. I said, you can have it for free. Just give me a credit that I did the interview. I didn't get one take up, not one pickup. There's there's such a fear in the American media to go past the official narrative. And right now, the official narrative is acting as if those 10 former secretaries and so on never said a word on January 4th. Well, I'm glad you raised 9-11 because I think that that helps to make the point that I was suggesting. That is to say, with 9-11, we all know that folks were tiptoeing around the Saudi connection. It was repeated ad nauseum that 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudis. There were all of these murky circumstances concerning Saudi officials, including Prince Bandar, or Bandar Bush, as he was called, about Saudi officials and the Southern California consulates, how Saudi nationals were ferried out of the United States, 
under very uh, suspicious circumstances. But now, in 2022, with the Saudi-U.S. relationship apparently heading south, I dare say that part of the ammunition that the Biden administration may be bringing to the table uh, could very well be uh, further uh, ammunition that will be aimed at the Saudis and their participation in 9-11. That's the import of some of these uh, lawsuits that are proceeding by the families, for example. Uh, that's the import of the so-called NOPEC legislation, uh, which is aimed at the Saudis because the Biden administration feels that the Saudis stabbed Washington in the back by before the midterm congressional elections, uh, basically cutting supply, which will allow price at the pump to go up, which they see as pro-Putin. Saudis say that it's just pro-Saudi. So I I think that as circumstances change, whatever evidence that may have been buried uh, will emerge, or as they say, truth will out. Well, maybe, maybe on the Saudi connection, I doubt on the Bush-Cheney rule, because (laughs) that, again, is one of the taboos. No, imagine, could a vice president and president actually allow a terrorist attack on American soil? Oh, God, no. Uh, It's a taboo, but maybe on the Saudi connection, although it's interesting, uh, you and I were talking just before we started the interview, I asked you, did you know who what who the largest based on market cap largest corporation in the world is right now and you got it right it's the saudi aramco oil company is the by a long shot it's two and a half trillion dollars uh, and i think it's at least half a trillion dollar more trillion dollars more than apple is the it's the biggest I and mean, they got they got a lot of dough to throw around and it was interesting trump before he was president or ran for president a few years before, was asked, he, what did he think of 9-11? He says, if you want to know who did 9-11, go ask the Saudis. But of course, once he's president, he goes and kisses the Saudi ring, just like Biden did, hoping for the best. But I think the Saudis are happy if they can sink Biden. They'd love to see uh, the, the Republicans back in the White House. Mm-hmm. Well, it also speaks to the so-called Davos in the desert meeting that's coming up in Saudi Arabia rather shortly. And the press reporting suggests that uh, Jamie Dimon, J.P. Morgan Chase, and BlackRock, and the other leaders of finance capital will be at Davos in the desert in Saudi Arabia, despite the downturn in relations between official Riyadh and official Washington. That, too, bespeaks these kinds of rifts between and amongst the political and economic leadership of this country, uh, which uh, other nations, not to mention domestic opposition, can play upon uh, to our benefit. I think the underlying thing here is that the American elites, and global elites really, but the Americans are the leaders of global capitalism, so in some ways it's more about them, um, they're out of options. So it has to be contradictory. I, I was looking at Boeing, and I think in one company you can see the kind of contradictory interest. Uh, Taiwan, which, which actually is, it has, I think it's number uh, 12 on the list of having the largest corporations in the world by market cap. Now, they're nowhere near 
what the Americans have or the Saudis have or the Chinese have, but they're way ahead of a country like Canada, for example. Taiwan is ahead of Canada. Uh, so Boeing, one of its more important arms sale clients is Taiwan. Not in the top 10 of Boeing, but maybe in the top 20. But the largest customer for Boeing commercial aircraft is China. So like one arm of the company wants almost war with Taiwan. <laughs> the other arm of the company wants to calm things down so they can sell commercial aircraft. It's it's all it's chaos because capitalism, global capitalism, is is you know it's out of solutions. It has no solution to the climate crisis, heading towards potential nuclear war. With and all the answer they have for that is spend more money and buy more nuclear weapons. Like there's virtually not a, a whisper of of the major nuclear. Uh, uh, weapons countries getting together and having another round of arms reduction negotiations. I mean, it's the whole thing is insanity doesn't even begin to approach it. Like, I don't know if there is a word to talk about where global capitalism is at. Well, speaking of Boeing, uh, of course, they're not only selling jets to China, but sooner rather than later, they'll be competing with not only Airbus of Europe, but China, because China has already developed a single lane jet, that is to say with a single passageway. They're only a few months or a few years away from developing the kinds of jumbo jets that have made the Boeing stockholders fat and happy. And so this is just part of the contradiction, it seems to me. But I think at the same time, uh, we have to recognize that the movement of this country, I'm afraid to say, is relatively weak. And that obviously limits. You mean the, progress the progressive movement? The progressive movement is relatively weak. Yeah, but not only this country. Very true. But. I think it's particularly ominous and dangerous in a country like this, which is armed in a nuclear fashion and has so many uh, rifts at the top, so many rifts in the middle, so many rifts at the bottom, that it becomes a very explosive situation. Yeah, no, 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 no question about it. And and the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine has made the world far more dangerous. Uh, the and the other thing that I think that's important about this rise of Christian nationalism and and its strength in the military, uh, you can look at Flynn. I mean, can you believe this guy used to be the uh, national security advisor? Flynn's going, you know, barnstorming in tents. General Flynn, revving up Christian nationalism in virtually overt uh, Nazi type framing. Uh, you know, I'll play this clip again a few a few seconds here. We, with American ideals, demand that our government shall be returned to the American people who founded it. If you ask what we are actively fighting for under our charter, first a social, just, white, Gentile, ruled United States. Second, Gentile-controlled labor union, free from Jewish Moscow-directed domination. 
this documentary, A Night at the Garden, mm. where the uh, American fascists uh, have a 20,000 take over Madison Gar Square Gardens and uh, uh, have a rally there. And, and what Flynn's doing is practically that. Um, mm. and, and this is a guy who was in the inner circle of the White House. So, and, and the Christian nationalists, if there's one positive thing that could come out of it is maybe it would reduce tensions with Russia somewhat because they like Putin. <laughs> they like the Christian nationalism mm. of, of Putin's Russia. But the problem is, is the, 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 the narrative of, of uh, fanatical Russian nationalism is based on being anti-American. So I don't know if that works out, even if the American Christian nationalists wanted to. But let's say it does to some extent. And, and good, if it reduces the possibility of nuclear war with Russia, okay, good for them. But they're even, if it's possible, they're even more vociferous against China. Bannon, and, and, and who I think is still and certainly uh, very much his ideological framing is still a lot of the direction of this right-wing movement. Uh, they want real war with China. I don't know how they think it doesn't go nuclear, but somehow they seem to think it does or could. Well, it's interesting to mention uh, Michael Flynn's brother, Charles Flynn, who is still a <laughs> high-level official in the Pentagon. Well, as the head of Pacific Command. You may recall on January 6th, uh, some of the calls where the congressional leadership was trying to get uh, assistance to repel the rioters, insurrectionists, whatever term you want to use, that on the other end of the call was Charles Flynn. Now, I, I, I think that in the United States right now, there's people are overly solicitous in terms of not imputing the sins of one sibling to the other sibling. But at the same time, it seems to me overly suspicious that uh, Charles Flynn was on the other end of the phone call and apparently was not very ag aggressive uh, in responding. With regard to Steve Bannon. Well, well I'm, I'm told by people I've interviewed who kind of follow Christian nationalist politics that they at least believe Charles Flynn is, is on the same wavelength. What's the other Flynn's? Is, he, is it Dennis? What's... what's well, there's Michael Flynn, the, who's the... Michael Trump. Flynn, yeah, that Charles is on the same Trump. wavelength as Michael. Yeah. yeah. I, I suspect the same thing. Now, with regard to Steve Bannon, uh, what I find curious is his relationship with this defector from China who goes by the name Miles Kwok, K-W-O-K. Uh, you may recall that when Mr. Bannon was detained by the U.S. authorities some months ago when he first got wind of the legal difficulty he would be in, he was on a vessel, if I might want to use the term yacht, uh, controlled by this one Miles Quack. That's only one of the names that he uses. Uh, he is fabulously wealthy. Uh, he made a huge fortune in China before he ran afoul of the authorities. And that's something else that uh, perhaps the January 6th committee will not dig into, but to the extent we still have independent journalists, some journalists needs to look into the relationships between these defecting Chinese tycoons and the U.S. right as embodied by one Steve Bannon. Mm. Yeah, I don't think Bannon's 
influence and role can be underestimated. He's played a significant role in Europe, and including apparently the rise of this new uh, prime minister in Italy. This mm-hmm. you know, far right prime minister is apparently closely connected to Ben, and he's spent a lot, been spending a lot of time in Europe, mm-hmm. rallying these far right forces and 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 interesting enough many of them are very sympathetic and sometimes openly pro putin uh, mm-hmm. this this is again digging into this kind of christian nationalist connection putin kind of promotes the, his leftist allies in the united states on rt and then in the right is quite overt in in financing uh, and, and promoting the far right including marie le pen and uh, in France, who uh, Russia has loaned money to for her election campaign. Uh, anyway, with a few minutes left here, um, there are some positive things happening in the United States, uh, I <laughs> oh, think. Really? Yeah. And uh, we'll see politically how much effect and how much it gets realized. I think there's an opening for the American working class that hasn't been around since late 60s, early 70s, uh, the pandemic has really shaken the global supply chains and the ability of the American elites to use especially Chinese cheap and disciplined labor, because there's other cheap labor around the world, but it's not disciplined and skilled the way Chinese labor is now. To be able to use that labor to blackmail and weaken the American working class, there's there's a window here where they, it's not as effective. And I've seen writing in, in The Economist and other places where they're openly talking about this. There was one article which said, you know, we've been able to control core inflation. By that, the, the writer was a woman, clearly meant wages <laughs> and the strength of unions. Uh, we've been able to control core inflation because we could, you know, we relied on globalization, uh, but we can no longer trust that globalization. So, and you can see right now, there is a real rise in militancy. There's more strikes. There's more organizing of the unorganized. There's some movement in some of the uh, unions uh, for reform within the union. Uh, You know, it's not clear that this is all going to win, that, you know, what scale it would become. But boy, there's an opportunity, an objective opportunity here, because, you know, it's not just ideological. You can't just go and persuade workers, be more militant. When they're scared of losing their plants, you know, jobs going overseas and getting undercut in wages, you know, when when there's real reasons to be scared, it's hard just to persuade people. But now there really is, uh, you know, an opportunity for militancy to rise because there's an opportunity to win. You can see in that railroad strike. I mean, I don't, I didn't follow it that much detail. I don't know if it was the perfect contract, but Jesus, 25% over three years, Uh, you wouldn't have seen that. Uh, two years ago, a year ago. And not to mention the fact that there's about to be an 8% bump upwards in Social Security payouts yeah. in yeah. a few yeah. months. That that hasn't happened in 40 years. That's, that's very significant. But I'm afraid to say that there's a bridge between these two points that you're raising. Uh, that is to say that uh, there's been a lot of reporting about Republicans congressional candidates who are anti-war, who are opposed to the U.S. intervention in Ukraine. Many of them are veterans from Afghanistan and Iraq. That ties into this previous point 
concerning Fox News and Tucker Carlson and their hostility uh, to uh, the intervention of the United States and NATO in Ukraine. And to the extent that the Republicans can identify themselves with peace and with an anti-war platform and can affix the war issue to the Democrats, it seems to me that's a winning issue for the Republicans. Now, let, let's set aside all the demagogy, uh, all of the... Yeah, that, that's a hard one for them because at a, at a lower down ballot, they, they can play that. And, and it's part of an outgrowth of the Christian nationalist sympathy for Putin and the Russian Orthodox Church and seeing Putin as a defender of the Christian faith and so on and so on. But the uh, military industrial complex ain't very happy about that. And, you know, the Republicans, the, the, the more senior sane leadership of the Republicans know where their bread is buttered. Plus, it ties into the contradiction of U.S. electoral politics and the Democratic Party. That is to say that the AFL-CIO, which is a main bulwark of the Democrats, has been on the wrong track with regard to foreign policy, going back to the Cold War and their maniacal anti-communism, whereby they were supporting regimes abroad that were oppressing labor and then leading to runaway shops going uh, to these countries, the most egregious example. Yeah, they dug their own grave. Oh, yeah. And then, of course, there's the black community, which cut a Faustian bargain with the U.S. ruling class in the 1950s. That is to say, distance yourself from the uh, anti-military intervention left and you'll receive uh, anti-Jim Crow concessions, uh, even though the ruling class has long since uh, reneged on their end of the bargain. I guess that the official black leadership feels that there is no alternative but to try to adhere to that bargain, uh, which obviously no longer obtains. And so when you have these two powerful forces that are basically missing an action with regard to foreign policy, that empowers the hawks and the neocons in the Democratic Party. It empowers Jake Sullivan, Victoria Newland, Anthony Blinken, Lloyd Austin at all. And if anything is a reason for pessimism, and I, I hate to raise a pessimistic note, I would say it's that complex of factors. Yeah, I, I mean, there's, I can't disagree. The, the this this bargain with the devil with that Lincoln project, these neocons that came to support Biden because they hate Trump, uh, they now have a real place. Uh, their voice is very heard in this administration on foreign policy. And, you know, mm -hmm. these are the people that brought us the Iraq war. Mm -hmm. uh, well, well, just to finish up, what, what do you know about, there's an interesting contradiction, I think, between the Trumpist, and it's not just Trump, but that whole alliance of evangelical, mm -hmm. uh, Catholic to some extent, uh, very much that the abortion issue is, is one of their tools. And I shouldn't say just one of their tools. It's, it's certainly... Uh, something of for a lot of people of sincere belief uh, and it's not so it's not an easy one to deal with but that said uh, the contradiction between them and the cheney-esque wing of the party uh i mean mcconnell really is part of that wing but he has to play ball which with the trump right now although i've said earlier i think mcconnell deliberately allowed congress to get 
rampage hoping it would sink Trump because it was up to McConnell. <laughs> it was up to McConnell to call in the uh, National Guard on January 6th to be there in the morning. And he stopped the uh, Capitol Hill police through the sergeant of arms that reported to McConnell. He would not allow them to call the National Guard. And the Capitol Hill police were screaming for the National Guard the morning of the 6th, but they were also screaming for it on the 5th. And I believe even on the 4th, one of the things this uh, January 6th commission came up with is that there was overwhelming evidence of what was about to happen. It was overwhelming that it was going to be violent. They knew they were going to storm uh, Capitol Hill, and the Capitol Hill police had that information. It's just nonsense that they didn't know it was coming. And in fact, there, it's clearly been reported in the press, but in interviews that took place with the former uh, chief of police of the Capitol Hill Police and the former sergeant of arms, both of whom were forced to resign or retire, or whatever they called it, that they tried to get, uh, get the uh, National Guard brought in, and it was up to McConnell to approve it, and McConnell didn't. And I think there's been a deal made, if I want to speculate here, and not here, speculation, speculation. I have to uh, brand it because I wasn't in the room. But why, hasn't, why haven't they gone after McConnell? And the only reason I can think is two things. One is because McConnell, in the final analysis, did support Pence confirming Biden. So he did what corporate America on the whole wanted, even in spite of what it might have meant for McConnell's electoral future, because he, he, he completely opposed Trump, but he seems to have gotten away with it. And, uh, you know, they, they, they just played some video of Pelosi the morning of the 6th. Uh, you know, we need National Guard. We need National Guard. But why wasn't she yelling about that on the 5th and the 4th? Because the sergeant of arms of the House reported to her so either, and I actually say this in truth, both of these things are possible. Either the sergeant of arms of the House didn't report to her what the Capitol Hill police was telling that committee. There's a three-person committee that, that the Capitol Hill police report to, a sergeant of arms of the Senate, sergeant of arms of the House, and for some reason, the architect of Capitol Hill. I don't know why the hell he's there, but anyway. Uh, anyway, so... Pelosi should have known and should have been screaming, not the morning, uh, you know, when the thing was already going out of control. She should have been demanding it on the 5th. And there's a really interesting moment during the impeachment hearings of Trump where Jamie Raskin is calling for witnesses. And there's a big fight whether they're going to have witnesses come. And Raskin says, well, I want to have witnesses about what happened and what and." talk about McConnell. And that's the first time anyone said it. And then, uh, I, I'm not sure if it was Ted Cruz, I think it was, steps up and said, no, that's the Senate. This was a House thing. So I'm not sure who it was that came forward. But a Republican stands up and says, well, if you want to investigate McConnell, go ahead, because we want to investigate Pelosi. Why didn't she do something? And Three, four hours later, Raskin comes back and says, okay, we've agreed not to have witnesses. So, you know, th there's a lot of BS going on there. But the, uh, the, the role of McConnell needs to be looked at because I, I think he was hoping the, 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 sh the shit fest that happened would sink Trump. But I, I did a piece at the time called a coup within a failed coup within a failed coup. Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, at any rate, 
Go ahead. Yeah. No, I, I just think there are numerous questions that have yet to be answered, perhaps even more that have yet to be posed. Hopefully the written report of the congressional committee would at least raise certain questions. And even now we already know that there has been this mysterious disappearance of text messages of the Secret Service. And given the, the plethora of armed men, armed forces, Capitol Police, Park Police, Zoo Police, the Patriot Act under the second Bush authorized the Federal Reserve to have its own police force, the FBI, a federal police agency, has a subsidiary police agency as well. So we know that uh, many of these agencies were witting with regard to what was about to go down on January 6th, but I'm willing to accept the explanation that either A, uh, they some of them might have been complicit, or B, uh, they were not uh, seriously suspicious because the insurrectionist rioters resembled law enforcement. Uh, both uh, physically and ideologically. And so that allowed them to be asleep at the switch. Uh, once again, let's hope that this congressional committee at least raises these questions in their final report. Uh, you know, th there's a window here, like uh, these elections matter uh, and, and not allowing this whole uh, slate of right-wing Republicans to take control of, of uh, the House and, and Senate and so on. It, it does matter in spite of how shitty the Democrats are. Uh, but most importantly, uh, there's an opportunity here to, to build a movement in the United States before this American state becomes more overtly authoritarian and you wind up with something akin to A Handmaid's Tale, a kind of an American authoritarian theocracy, maybe a secular authoritarian regime. I wouldn't rule that out the way this world is unfolding and the chaos that's facing the American elites. It may be, whether it's religious grammar or done in the name of just nationalism, that we start to see far more authoritarianism. Right now is an opportunity to be get organized, and I hope people take advantage of that. So thanks very much for joining me, Gerald. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Uh, please don't forget the donate button and all the rest, the subscribe. Uh, please get on the email list. Uh, thanks again for joining us.